projects today uh, working with Heather and Courtney, the remix crew. Hi, Eva. <laughs> <laughs> nice Hi, to be us. here. <laughs> Yay. Uh, today joining us in the studio is Catherine Gressel, a New York City-based independent curator, artist, and writer. She is currently the contemporary arts curator at the Old Stone House in Washington Park, a historic house in Park Slope that also includes a playground and a community garden. Catherine's curatorial practice centers around public and site-specific art in non-traditional spaces. Specific topics of interest include the aesthetics of participatory and socially engaged art, the role of artists in envisioning and shaping notions of utopia and other urban planning topics, and the evaluation of public art. She has curated solo and group exhibitions in all media, in addition to 10 major exhibitions to date at the Old Stone House. She also organized exhibitions for NARS Foundation, St. Francis College, No Longer Empty, the Figment Summer Long Sculpture Program on Governor's Island, the New York City Department of Transportation's Public Art Program, and the Brooklyn Historical Society, among others. Catherine received her BA in art from Yale and MA in arts administration from Columbia. Thank you. <laughs> nice to have you here. Where shall we begin, everyone? Let's begin with some history. Yeah, that would be a great way to start, I think. So Eva just read a very long bio mm -hmm. by Catherine, and there are lots of other things she could have said as well, um, including things like experience in fundraising, grant writing, curation and education. Um, so I'm curious which experiences are pivotal in your history. What what do you tell people in the like two minute <laughs> curator? Sure, I'll try to keep rundown. it to two minutes. So um, it's, it's actually funny because um, several years back I was interviewed for another podcast um, with the creative career coach Michelle Ward who kind of taught me the phrase multi-passionate individual or multi-potentialite I guess is another word for it and meaning like someone who doesn't necessarily want or need to have just one job title or focus and I've sort of been able to forge my own path that combine a lot of different interests um, but I would say that everything I do in the arts has been kind of under the umbrella of how art can impact communities and spaces beyond the traditional art world um, and around I'd say around 10 years ago it's, it really became clear that curating site-specific art um, and programs is really what allows me to kind of combine everything that I love to do um, but to kind of start from the beginning, um, when I was in college, I majored in painting, and I also developed this really strong interest in public art. Um, but, you know, at the time, I kind of felt like the more, more, most obvious route was to go into arts education to kind of work in that, you know, community art setting. Um, and so I initially started by doing an, um, the wonderful education fellowship at the Brooklyn Museum in Museum Ed and working as a teaching artist. And then it sort of became apparent that um, classroom teaching isn't really my greatest strength that I'm much better on like the programming and management and outreach side of things um, so that led me to my arts administration master's program at Columbia uh, where I, I did actually manage to kind of keep my research and internship focus around public art but out of grad school you know I sort of took the jobs that were available to me which was um, again mostly kind of managing um, arts education programs with you know some fundraising and um, that sort of thing in like public schools and small arts education nonprofits, um, you know, including serving as programs manager at Smack Mellon Gallery for four years, which I realize some of you also a large percentage of the people in this room worked at Smack Mellon. <laughs> um, yeah, so while I was doing all that, I was actually also pursuing some of my own art making on the side. Um, 
And I was also settling, kind of settling down in Brooklyn during a time like the early to mid 2000s when um, the borough was rapidly, and New York City as a whole, was kind of starting to change into this gentrified and trendy cultural hub that many consider it to be today. And um, especially as a native New Yorker who kind of came of age in the city in like the 80s and 90s, um, I was really aware of these changes taking place. And like a lot of local artists, I was kind of inspired to respond to that in my own um, painting, you know, my own work. And um, I kind of realized that like artists could sort of curate and make work around a topic that interests them when I was invited to be part of this show in 2006 by some artist friends of mine that were focusing on um, artists responding to the Atlantic Yards development, which is now Barclay Center, which was very like controversial at the time. Um, and then from that, I sort of got inspired to do a, a show about Brooklyn as a whole, where I would invite artists um, to kind of um, envision like what an ideal Brooklyn would look like. Um, and that became my idea for Brooklyn Utopias. Um, you know, to curate a show which would also include my own work and the work of a lot of other artists um, responding to kind of our environment. Um, and so I applied to some grants and residents to do that, wound up getting the opportunity to do it at the Brooklyn Historical Society through this wonderful program at the time called Public Perspectives that focused on emerging curators. Um, and then I also was connected to um, the director of the Old Stone House, Kim Mayer, you know, who as you know, I still work with to this day. Um, and wound up doing like basically two simultaneous exhibits uh, around this theme at two different sites with about 35 artists. And um, wow. I also so developed from, like zero to 60. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say like I kind of like was diving into the deep end before I even like knew how to swim as a curator. You know, I did a lot of research on Brooklyn's history and developed public programming and a, another corresponding exhibit with a local youth oriented nonprofit, which sort of brought in my interest in arts education. So. You know, it was very intensive, but it was, you know, so much fun and really showed me that this kind of work allows me to combine all my different interests. Um, and I guess after that, it sort of took a few more years to really lean into the idea that, you know, curating rather than art making um, was going to be my main sort of creative pursuit. Because um, as I mentioned like in the earlier shows, um, I included some of my own work, but obviously that's kind of frowned upon by a lot of institutions. and. Um, really, like when I started working at Smack Mill and especially in sort of working to run the uh, residency program there, I came into contact with a lot of artists and really saw like their dedication to having that kind of concentrated time to just work in their studios and experiment with materials. And I just realized that that's not really where my passion lies. I really love to support, like being in the role of supporting other artists and writing about their work and bringing them together in creative ways with communities. So. Over the years, I just kind of started doing more curating and you know less art making, and that's kind of how it all began. And you know, I'll talk more about other places I've worked and other shows I've curated too. Well, I have a question really fast, based on what you were just talking about about the art artist curators, mm -hmm. and um, you said a lot of institutions frown upon it. I think that yeah. That, that that maybe is changing? I'm not sure. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Does yeah, anyone in the yeah. room want to comment? <laughs> I was curious about that too because I, I'm wondering what this kind of multifaceted career looks like mm -hmm. and um, how do you compartmentalize that or not? And also because in, 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 in the arts we were here because there is a sense of flexibility, there is a sense of different kind of the the, the self-discipline that goes into it mm -hmm. the same discipline that you speak about in terms of the artist dedicated having that allocated time for it but then um as a curator i don't think it's that different 
Can you speak about that? Yeah, I guess that's true. Like, I think it's just a different type of work. Like, I think you definitely need, do you mean sort of like that focused time to work or to write or to research, like that sort of thing? To write, to research, to do a studio visit, to be present. Yeah, yeah. I I think what I meant was really just like, my passion isn't so much like, being in the studio and making something, I guess, is what I meant, like making something with materials. I know a lot of artists' practice isn't about that. It is about collaboration or, or whatever, um, and there's so many ways to define what it is to be an artist. But um, I think what I like about curating is it does allow me to bring a different you know, a range of artists together and sort of match them up with spaces and with um, the public and sort of work on it from you know, the, the larger level, I guess, if that makes sense. I guess maybe what we're talking about, too, is just the time commitment. I think it's really hard. I I don't see... I feel like institutions that don't want a curator artist to be in a show... I feel like it's sort of an antiquated notion at this point. That's my own personal opinion. Yeah, it's like if you're, if, you're, if you're putting it together and you're one of the voices among mm-hmm. many, I don't see that there's a problem because you're probably more invested in that topic than anyone else if you're already making work about it. But I feel like it must be very, very hard, and I found this for myself, too, to actually put aside time to make art. And Mm -hmm. as Eva was just, like, insinuating, it's also a lot of freaking time to, like, put together a show. And it's more than you think. Mm -hmm. Because there's all the correspondence with all the artists. There's a lot of coordination. With the institution, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I I didn't really mean to make, like, a controversial statement there. That, like, I, I... do think there are plenty of places that are very open to artists curing themselves, especially you know if they're forging their own path and working right. in non-traditional spaces. But um, I think I think with the Old Stone House, I guess as we started to curate more shows together over the years um, and kind of apply for more institutional funding, we kind of made the decision like it might look better if you know we're giving more artists, you know, more diverse artists opportunities to be in the show, and it's not like every single show the same curator is also like carrying her work into the show. I think that was right. kind of what drove that statement and that you know it was a decision that I was comfortable with and um. I'm curious to hear about the programming that happens um, with a place like the old stone house where you know there's also the community garden the programming and like how much the curator plays into that and how do you see that in your practice is the programming something integral um, yeah yeah so in community um, and in public spaces Definitely. Yeah. So I guess the way that it evolved into kind of transitioning out of like, you know, the work that I was doing at Smackmelon and other places and focusing more on Old Stone House was that um, after those first Brooklyn Utopia shows about 10 years ago, um, you know, Kim and I really loved working together there and um, wound up doing more Brooklyn Utopia shows sort of on specific topics. Like we had one on urban farming and public parks and transportation, you know, maybe like every year to every two years. We were sort of, I was sort of independently doing these shows there. Um, also working with some other organizations that um, really developed different kind of skill sets in site-specific art. Like I was doing the Figment Sculpture Garden on Governor's Island, which unfortunately is no longer it's kind of been discontinued, but it was like a participatory um, sculpture exhibition, large scale. And I was also doing, you know, the Smack Melon, which really introduced me to a lot of artists and how to support artists and um, did the uh, exhibition with No Longer Empty. So I was working with other spaces as well. Um, 
but then uh, I wound up transitioning out of Smack Melon in 2014, um, mainly because you know I wanted more time to develop my work as a curator. And at the same time, I had actually discovered this other source of um, income as a freelancer that allowed me to um, be have more flexible hours and not have to be at a, a full-time job, which I'll talk more about later. But um, a few years after that, the Old Stone House, um, you know, we continued to work together, and then they got a grant from NISCA to kind of formalize the um, exhibition program and really build it into like a more official sort of thing. And so they brought me on as the person to kind of spearhead and run that program, um, which was really exciting. So um, since then, I've sort of been there um, still on a pretty part-time basis, but um, at the same time, it's pretty intensive because I am doing like two to th two to four exhibitions a year, you know, sometimes bringing in guest curators and also developing about two or three public programs with each exhibition. And uh, just to give like some background on the Old Stone House, um, it's a, as you mentioned before, I think it's a historic house. It's actually a 1699 Dutch farmhouse that was reconstructed by Robert Moses in the 1930s, and it's the site of the Battle of Brooklyn, which was kind of like the major uh, local battle of the American Revolution. Um, and now, if you've seen Hamilton, yes, it plays a big role. <laughs> definitely yes. ties into Hamilton yes. and all that. Um, so there's a lot of interesting history there. They do like a battle reenactment week every year, which is actually coming up now in August as we're recording this. Um, and they have a permanent exhibition on the first floor that focuses on you know, the history of Revolutionary Brooklyn and trying to bring in, you know, diverse voices and have a lot of interaction, active elements. So that's kind of their permanent exhibition. And then on the second floor, there's like this event space um, that hosts a lot of different kinds of programs, like anything from concerts to theater to groups that like regularly rent the space for classes and um, they do educational programs with public schools. So they'll get like 7,000 school children a year and 500,000 park visitors because um, it's also in this like local park with a playground and a community garden. Um, so it's a very multi-purpose space, but the second floor um, is also where we have rotating contemporary art exhibits in addition to some public art out in the park. And um, the house has really kind of adapted this program as a way to make the history relevant to the pre the present mm -hmm. and to really bring in different kinds of, of voices um, in the form of you know the contemporary artists and local artists. Um, so our goals are, are really to make that history relevant, as I mentioned, and then also um, support artists in interesting ways. Um, and a lot of the sort of our, our goal in supporting artists is similar to, to what I learned about at Smack Melon, which is like providing um, sometimes solo or two-person artists um, exhibitions with artists kind of responding to our unique space and um, you know to, and to the history and then we also have um, group exhibitions around like kind of contemporary or current event themes that relate you know kind of loosely to the history or of like the American Revolution or Brooklyn's history as a farming and agricultural place sort of tying into you know environmental themes as well so we've had shows that were kind of more directly related like we had a show on um, flags and monuments these this past year but also you know kind of more indirectly related like health and wellness sort of relating to you know the pursuit of happiness or whatever um, but it's really great because there's so many directions that you can go with that historic connection um, and then another goal of ours is to uh, support local artists because you know, we're in a neighborhood like Park Slope, Gowanus, uh, sort of bordering almost on Sunset Park that is rapidly gentrifying with a lot of artists being forced out of their studios. So we've had an ongoing partnership with Arts Gowanus to support those local artists. Um, the Gowanus Swim Society is a group we work with year after year um, to kind of keep local artists with plenty of exhibition opportunities. And, 
you know, we really try to follow um, kind of best practices in, in paying our artists and, and giving them support like a professional installer and, um, you know, help with transporting their work or whatever they need and kind of incubating them in that way to, you know, to the best extent possible as a very small nonprofit. I have a quick question. This just brings me to how are you um, finding the artists to put into these shows or are they applying to be in programs with you? Are they artists that you're already aware of or how are you finding the artists for these shows? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, So as I kind of touched upon, we're very um, committed to diversity and sort of being inclusive. So we we do kind of a combination of these group shows that might have like 10 to 12 artists, both inside and outside our space, um, where we do like an open call process so that we kind of cast as wide a net as possible. And we'll have a selection committee. Actually, Ava was on one of those committees recently um, where we'll bring together other community leaders and arts professionals to kind of help make the final selection. Um, But we also do very targeted outreach even as part of that process. So we want to make sure that we do reach artists who will bring, um, you know, represent kind of cultural diversity. Um, We've had, you know, we try to get um, a good percentage of artists of color, of LGBTQ artists um, who really bring in, you know, different perspectives on whatever topic we're working with. So we really try to do that very intentionally, not just wait for artists to come to us. Um, You know, I do a lot of studio visits. I go to open studios and, um, you know, research, uh, research a lot of artists and, Um, A lot of it might be through referrals from other artists, um, people I've met. And we try to look for artists that are, um, you know, like to do site-specific work and like to work sometimes with communities or do kind of participatory elements to their work. Um, You know, a good example might be uh, Natalia Nakazawa, who's a former host of this podcast. Um, (laughs) Shout out. We had a show. um, (laughs) Yes, shout out to Natalia. She's great. Um, she and um, Cecile Chong, they're both you know, good friends and colleagues, they did a show together that focused on kind of, it was called multi-locational and it kind of focused on being from different cultural backgrounds and expressing that in your work. And Natalia, uh, both artists um, you know, are teaching artists also, so both the show actually included collaborations between both artists and local public school students where we partnered mm-hmm. with middle schools and Um, had some student work and some work that was kind of in collaboration between artists and students and also workshops for the public that brought the public in and a great example of sort of how we kind of incubated an artist project and provided a new experience was that Natalia did this project called um, Our Stories of Migration, um, this big tapestry that students and the public were able to contribute to showing like how they, where they come from and where they're going and their family backgrounds, this big like map of the world and that wound up being presented at like a whole bunch of other institutions um, in the future, like the Med and the Mm -hmm. Museum of Arts and Design, I believe. So that really became like an ongoing project that got a lot of recognition that kind of started out with um, responding to the Old Stone House. So that's sort of a great example of like the types of artists we like to work with and how we try to support them. And um, Can people um, approach you? So this is a question I have for as far as the artists are concerned and then also you as a curator. Can artists also send you a proposal? Yes. Yeah, so we're. I mean, we haven't t- totally formalized a process for this. I guess um, in terms of like having something explicitly on our website that's like if you want to propose something, follow these steps or whatever. But um, but we do have artists that occasionally you know that know about us and come you know, approach us. And then I also sometimes meet artists through like studio visits, open studios, or whatever. Um, or reach out to artists and kind of invite them to apply. That was sort of the case with the exhibition that we have opening this week with um, Tahir Carl Karmali, who's an artist I met at like Dumbo Open Studios, I think, and 
I thought his work would be a great fit for the space. And then he kind of brought in um, this other artist, uh, Justin Sterling, who, and they're going to be exhibiting together. And they've really kind of worked closely together on the exhibition. Um, so that's sort of a good example of you know, an exhibition that was kind of driven by me meeting an artist, but also really brought in the artist and, and his ideas. And um, yeah, and then we would definitely also welcome people reaching out to us um, with ideas. It just has to be, I guess one of the challenges of the space um, is that it has to be work that can exist in a multi-purpose space, mm -hmm. um, which definitely has some restrictions. Um, you know, like we can't have 3D standing work in the middle of the floor because we have like thousands of school children going through that space every day or theater performances or, or whatever. And we can't have a lot of video work or you know, a lot of projected video especially. So there's definitely certain restrictions. So we need to know that the artists are able to work with that. And then I haven't talked a whole lot about budget, but you know, because we're so, so small, we don't have a huge budget for each show, which is something we're trying to, to work on. You know, we've gotten mm -hmm. some, some good grants, but uh, but you know, there's definitely some limitations. But I think we like artists who are who like to work in that that sort of challenges. I think. Mm -hmm. And then I guess that brings me so talking about sort of access. And it sounds like you you um, are have sort of have an open door where you're you're actually soliciting submissions, and then you're looking, and people can propose. And I'm curious how you feel as a as a, a curator, <laughs> going out into the world, and finding opportunities. Like how how have you? I feel like it's a struggle for all of us, yeah. right? Right, guys? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Finding like because you might have the idea, but you don't have the space. You might have the space, mm -hmm. but you're like, what's my idea? Right. So money. yeah, I need to. Yeah. Where's the money in all of these scenarios? So um, I'm curious from your perspective and your history, like how how have you made it work? Like the Stone House. Well, Stone House is this consistent presence yeah. in your life, which is maybe to you an amazing anchor. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I'm curious how you see it and how you see the other projects. Yeah, so I think that's definitely one of the biggest challenges I'm facing or that I think independent curators in general face is kind of what's worth putting your time into doing, especially, you know, I'm sure we'll get to talking about this more <laughs> later on in the interview, but just, you know, a lot of these spaces don't even offer funding for the curator or for the artist, which to me is really a problem because how can you ask artists to participate in a show when the institution is not even offering any stipends for them to create new work or even to, you know, frame or transport or install their work? Um, you know, and, I'm, and of course I'm talking about nonprofit spaces that aren't necessarily selling a lot of the work, um, but, but I think that is a challenge. And so, um, you know, for a while I was applying to a lot of opportunities, um, you know, sort of open calls for curators and, um, you know, those do take a lot of time and then there's not always funding available. So I think the hard, the hard choice is like, even though they might be pretty prestigious in some cases, um, you know, what's worth spending the time applying for. So what's, what's nice is having that, the, the Old Stone House is something that I can really develop, uh, also like develop a deeper relationship with. So it's not just going into a community, doing one, a one-off sort of thing and, and leaving, but kind of being able to develop this program over the years and make it more sustainable. Um, but I will say that I, I have had some great experiences with those open calls. Uh, like I, I was selected for the NARS Foundation um, 2016 Emerging Curator Show, um, which was which was really great because that was you know a really interesting space to work with. And I did the um, No Longer Empty Curatorial Lab, actually in its first year. Now it's a much more established program, but you know that was just a really amazing sort of hands-on opportunity. So I think it is important to. Um, you know, work with a range of different or institutions and kind of see how they do things and learn from them. And, um, 
you know, I, I do really, I am really drawn to um, not just kind of, I think the other challenge for me at least is how do you be original as an independent curator? Because I feel like there's such a saturation of them and there are so many people like working with similar themes, you know, with social social practice art, I think is very trendy now, you know, or site specific art. So what I, what I really enjoy is, is kind of starting with a space rather than necessarily trying to come up with an idea that's gonna go into a white cube space. Um, and of course, like I also, feel like my curatorial work, especially in recent years, it, re it really is, has become more driven by the artists and what I feel like are exciting things that artists are working on, rather than just like, I must find work that relates to this, you know, this theme or this current topic, you know, because then I think you're not going to have a good show. But, but I, I really like, I guess what I'm trying to say is I really like when the space can sort of, and the community can kind of dictate the topic in, in some ways. Um, and I guess recently I, I had the privilege of working with St. Francis College. I was invited by one of their Art, art history professors to um, do something there that would really tie in with the, what they were teaching and the kind of mission of the school. And it wound up being a environmentally themed show where the students were really engaged with working with some of the artists. We had you know, Mary Mattingly um, do a new installation for that space and some other artists that whose work is really rooted in um, you know community and and getting getting them engaged. That was that was a great kind of example of other types of projects that I would like to do that may not be like the traditional kind of curatorial open call route, but um, getting invited by a space to, to really develop something new and bring in art where there may not be art programming already. Do you have a dream space? Yeah, that's a good, I was trying to think about, um, you know, I don't want to single out any kind of one institution. I know it's a hard, um, it's a hard question. I say why not? Because then why not? maybe they'll note it. Maybe put it they'll the, put it yeah. in the atmosphere yeah. and maybe they'll like, why we're, not? What were we talking Speak about? Speak it into existence. Speak yeah. it into existence. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I think, um, you know, ultimately it would be great to be in charge of a, like a public art program for like a larger space than, you know, than just one, one park or one, one area. Um, but I guess in terms of like, sort of institutional partners um, that I'd love to work with in the future. I mean, we, it's been great because we've, we've actually brought in some really good partners um, for what I've been doing at, at Old Stone House. Like we worked with the DOT public art program to do a public art work on a local traffic median that tied into one of our shows. And we worked with Creative Time last year with their Pledges of Allegiance um, flag exhibition to fly one of their flags in conjunction with our flag exhibit. So, mm. um, and then we also bring in a lot of um, more sort of community-based organization partnerships like Museum of Impact and Museum of Hue um, run by curator Mon Monica Montgomery that focuses on sort of opportunities for people of color in the museum world and social impact projects. We've had, you know, co-curated some shows with them. So um, I definitely enjoy bringing in these other partnerships to Old Stone House. I guess in terms of like a, an example of a type of institution that might be the type that I'd want to work with if I were to, you know, eventually go to like a larger you know, more of a museum or larger organization setting would be something like the Museum of Art and History in Santa Cruz, um, where uh, Nina Simon just actually just left as the executive director, and she's been really influential in kind of um, making the work of institutions relevant to communities as sort of an essential part of, you know, curating and organizing programming. Um, she just actually started this initiative called Of By For All that focuses on that. Um, and I was lucky enough to do like three different workshops at that museum, which was called a museum camp actually, which is sort of a summer camp theme, but you know, helping us rethink how we do, you know, the role of museums and, and arts organizations. So a place like that, that, you know, defines curating, um, not just as like, you know, researching and exhibiting the collection and artists, but really the, 
um, the bringing in the general public. I think they even have what they call an exhibition catalyst as opposed to a curator to organize the Ooh, exhibition. So, interesting. You know, if I were to go into a more, more of a large institutional position, it would probably be like a role that defines the curator, I guess, more, more like that, like more of a programming and outreach kind of focus as well. Catalyst is a great word. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love that. And when we were talking, we've been using the word collaborator a lot mm. already. Yeah. Um, instead of just saying curator. And now catalyst, I love. I yes. just love. I feel like however Active. many years ago it was, someone, you know, you were told, like, all the jobs that we know today, only 20% of them will exist in 20 years. And all they will be all new jobs. It's really just like rethinking mm-hmm. titles, I think, for a lot of roles. Um, that are that sort of like hit the nail on the head a little bit better as to yeah, what you're instead actually instead of doing. a string of three or four jobs, right? That are yeah, already part of it. Yeah, <gasps> exactly. Multi-passionate is that what you call? Yeah, it? yeah. Like multi-passionate. Yeah, that you said a lot of good things today. Yeah, <laughs> so I think I'm multi-passionate, exactly. and I just I'm never I'm multi-passionate identified that, but now I do. Right. <laughs> you have to define it. Yeah, like at that moment that you hit yes. it on the nail, yes, it has this purpose. And you own it. And I think that speaks a lot to just the f- the fusion of experiences that come together for you to go into one space and then bring it in. Yeah. One of the questions we had w- was, what are the impediments to being an independent curator? And I think along with that, I would love if you could touch on things like the financial situation yes, that goes along with that. Which might also touch on your your um, role as an artist now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's hear all about it. Because you, yeah. your whole situation sort of flips the stereotype on its head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I do actually kind of like to say that I am an curator, you know, curator slash arts administrator slash educator who makes a living as an artist, as a, as a painter, actually. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> the only I person I know. Yeah. Be, yeah, I never thought that that would be my life, but it somehow kind of happened, um, which I also would recommend, you know, if you see opportunities on the horizon, like take advantage of them, you know, kind of thing, because, um, so I guess to go back to the, ch- the challenges of being an independent curator, I, I talked about some of the sort of more conceptual career challenges, but I think probably the biggest one is is really the lack of of funding and kind of the the saturation of people trying to enter this field and just you know for very limited I think opportunities that really provide I think the financial support to to like sustain yourself doing that as a career um, so I think that most most independent curators I know certainly have another source of income and you know, I'm not shy about the fact that, um, you know, the Old Stone House, I'd say, compared to a lot of organizations, they do offer a pretty generous stipend for curating shows there. And, and as I said, we really try to pay our artists, um, you know, according to wage standards, if you want to look up um, the wage website for how to pay artists. But, um, and, you know, the goal is ultimately to make it more of a, a salaried, at least part-time kind of salaried position. But, you know, in the, in the meantime, um, I have this other source of income, which is basically that I work in the wedding industry. So I work as a live event painter. I go to people's weddings and other private events, sometimes birthdays or corporate events or bar mitzvahs, and I create um, paintings, like sort of like plein air style, like landscape, cityscape type paintings um, of the event as it's happening. Um, And usually people will, you know, pick a scene that they want depicted, like the first dance or the ceremony, and I'll put in the portraits of the key people and so basically by the end of the event I'm sort of part of the entertainment and then at the end of the event you get this like special you know lasting 
memory of your your wedding or whatever um so it's this is amazing, amazing. Genius. yeah so it's very Genius. popular right now there are more and more artists entering the field um i'm probably one of the first artists who kind of started doing this um and it just happened really randomly i had my my kind of landscape and cityscape because i would make sort of realistic landscape cityscape paintings um i had them on my website and on like i think the brooklyn arts council website or those other sort of websites where you you know upload your work into their registries and someone was just searching for painters found me and invited me to do her wedding and this is like back in 2008 and I decided I'd try it out and then kind of put that piece up on my website and then you know every few years I would get or maybe once a year I'd get another like wedding commission and then I started to kind of advertise it and promote it around 2011 I guess and then in 2012 the New York Times did a feature on live event painting and they included an image of my work and amazing it really took off from there and now it's kind of I'd say it's a very sought after thing and I if I wanted to I would probably I could probably do like two to three weddings every weekend um that's (laughs) for a while I was doing that and I realized I had to it's not sustainable yeah Yeah, it wasn't sustainable for me but it's very emotional yeah so and it's a lot it can be a lot of travel you know a lot of these things take place outside of New York City proper you know so so it is a lot of work, and I, I spend I spend some time in the studio in between the weddings. You know, of course, doing the business side of things, the outreach, the the billing, and um, you know, finishing up the paintings, touching them up in the studio. Um, but you know, it is it is a lot of fun, and I'd say like the big advantages of it, um, you know, is that I think as an artist, you know, if you're if you can find something unique and beautiful to offer to people in the wedding industry or in the sort of private commissions or whatever you might call it um, industry whether it's like I don't know unique stationery or um, I don't know embroidery or you know whatever you whatever you do and there's a market for that it can be a great way to um, bring in some I like to call it earned income that can support your creative work you know you're not paying a a 50% commission to a gallery to sell this stuff that you can do it through Instagram or online or you know um, Etsy or there's a lot of a lot of platforms for that and um I can totally you know make my own hours I can turn down weddings if if I want to set aside a weekend for something else that's art related or family related or whatnot um and during the weekdays I usually don't book jobs painting jobs so I can you know be around to you know install exhibitions and do openings and do my curatorial stuff um so, you know, all of that. And it's also, like, what's great about the wedding industry for me is that, you know, I'm not necessarily scrambling to see where the next job is coming from because people book these things sometimes a year and a half in advance. Right. So oh, I kind yeah, of, true. you know, I know that, like, yeah. for 2020, I'm, I'm kind of set already. Um, this is genius. Of, like, financially, you know. <laughs> um, and to be totally honest, like, without giving exact figures, like, it is, you know, I think at, at least I'm able to make a lot more than I would be making at sort of a position at my level in a nonprofit. I don't know if we want to keep that in the podcast or not, but it's real. It is a reality. Though. And you yeah. know, I know that there was recently something shared online with mm-hmm. salaries of typical curators and, and other administrators. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of buzz around that. And I also want to bring up the fact that I do have, you know, a two year old daughter now, you know, we, I started a fam, you know, having kids and, um, it is very hard to balance like a quote-unquote day job with creative work with you know being a parent and I think that people should be talking more about how difficult that is for not just artists but arts administrators and curators who also have caregiving responsibilities Um, so I think if you can find something that gives you flexible hours and 
brings in some income for your family, you know, that's great. I'd say the, the downside is that unlike, you know, the typical independent curator artist who might be doing their day job at like a nonprofit like Smack Melon or, a, you know, teaching at a university or something, I, I don't feel like I'm kind of engaging with my, you know, curatorial interests on a day to day basis at my day job. You know, I'm not like meeting contemporary artists through a nonprofit or, you know, talking to people about contemporary art issues or going to conferences, you know. That doesn't happen at weddings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so it's not like every day I'm kind of it's not that's not as directly related, I guess. And the challenge to me has been kind of balancing it out so that the the live event vent, vent painting, um, even though I really enjoy it, like doesn't sort of completely take over my life in that sense, and mm. and does give me time to do what I need to do, like whether it's attend openings or studio visits or you know all of those things that that do go into being a curator, and um, so. But at the same time, like, I think it would be great. I'm, I'm trying to find ways to kind of combine those two things a little bit more deliberately. Like, I'd love to do some research on how artists are actually using the same techniques as live event painters in more of a social practice context, for example. And I curated a show a few years ago that I really enjoyed doing at Old Stone House called, um, uh, it was a, like a contemporary portraiture show, but all the artists in it were doing work that sort of blurred the boundaries between um, commissioned work and creative work. Um, so it was really interesting sort of finding that there are a lot of artists who, you know, might photograph a wedding and then use one of the outtakes as like something that from for one of their own, you know, kind of more mm -hmm. critical f photographs, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so that was a really interesting show to do. And we also had a panel on that show called Creating for Hire, where we tried to teach other, you know, emerging artists about the option of doing commissions as a way to sustain yourself, which was, you know, really interesting and really well attended. Um, so, you know, and maybe there's a way that I could more deliberately have, you know, a portion of my income go towards my contemporary art shows or supporting artists or nonprofits that I care about. So I'm still sort of working on, on how, to, how that all kind of balances out. Mm. I love how transparent you are about this because yeah. I, I remember when I moved to New York, I don't remember what year it was, I should Google this, but um, the Drawing Center had a show called Day Job and it was curated by Nina Cachadorian. Oh, wow. And I just felt such a sense of relief when I saw that show. I guess it wasn't that, that long ago, but I felt like it was such a... Uh, a taboo subject to talk mm, about yeah, what your day yeah. job or your night job or whatever it was actually was and to admit that that was what gave you stability and not the art practice or the curatorial practice or whatever and she just had all these artists just show the work that they created either at their job or in as a result of their job so or in conjunction with their job and it was a it was a really beautiful show I think this topic is kind of what even what spurred us to do this podcast to begin with yeah. is that we just felt like times were changing you know mm -hmm. that this kind of topic we had worked with artists in the past who were maybe afraid to do uh, for higher work commercial work um, because they felt in some way that it would hurt their fine art career yeah. and, and I just feel like them, that is changing like the mentality is changing and it's really about artists doing it for themselves and if you can find something to support yourself to support your practice do it you know I feel like it's far more pro these days, um, you know, to be proactive in that way. Um, until we can change the world and structurally change yes. how all of our until, time is valued, yes. et cetera. Yes. <laughs> and it's also important because especially for, you know, for a nonprofit, often the earned income is, is unrestricted income. So you can use that for general operating and, 
and like for Old Stone House, for example, you know, similar to kind of what I do in my personal life, they get um, a pretty large, I'd say it's about 20%, I think. Um, I may be slightly off on that, but a, a lot, you know, a substantial portion of their income comes from um, their rental program. So they rent out the space for, for weddings and for other, you know, really classes, like any kind of event um, that wants to use the space. And some of that, some of that income ha- has helped, you know, develop the uh, the the uh, exhibition program too and the trade-off of course is like you know then there are more limited public hours for viewing the exhibitions and it's harder to schedule things like programming you know creative programming but at the same time um you know we're not it, it just gives you that sort of more i think more security and um you know, Smack Melon too. It, I, I know for a while they were renting their space, and that was a big part of their their income too. Um, so if, if you can do that, I think that's really important. While we're on this topic of being self sustaining, I would love if if we have time to talk about again, like education, grad school, and whether or not you think it's necessary. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna go there, Courtney. I'm gonna go there. Whether yeah. or not you think it's necessary. Or, you know, I mean, you have some big names in your resume. I know, well, yeah. it's true. But also, but for me, the thing that I'm constantly warning people about now is, you know, to weigh that because you might end up with these humongous loans. So I just feel like in the past I was so pro, pro, pro education. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I, I would like to ask everybody if they feel like, you know, what did that do for you? And are you still, are you suffering from it? Or do you feel like you're actually thriving because of it? Also in the context of education as a whole, because uh, you also participated in No Longer Empty at its start mm-hmm. of launching this alternative uh, curatorial lab. I'm an alumnus well. Oh, I didn't so know that. So like, what, um, what, what is your thought process on that from a formal education to a not so formal, but yet it is an education. Yes, so how yeah. how we continue to be very positive about that even though it's literally a negative bundle in the back. Yeah, it, it's it's a hard question because I almost feel like when I was making those choices to go to school, there wasn't, it was just sort of a different time. Like it was before like the major financial recession had hit. Like I'm sort of not even considered a millennial by some definitions, although I guess I sort of am. But, you know, it was just, it was sort of a different time and, you know, I'm also going to own my, my own privilege and, and recognize that, you know, my parents actually, I'm very lucky in that they did enable me to go to undergrad without loans, without debt. So I had that right away, you know, out of college, which allowed me to kind of experiment with these lower paying, you know, internships and jobs. And, you know, so that I, so I did have, you know, that kind of safety net to fall back on. Also, the fact that my parents um, live have lived in New York, you know, for the past, like, 40 years and so I was able to live at home for one of the years I was in grad school you know just that sort of thing you know a lot of people don't don't have that when they're starting out especially like in the New York art world um, and I also ended grad schools in, in um, 2007 like before the also kind of right before the recession hit so there were just I think more jobs easily you know decently paying jobs available at the time I, I think for recent graduates um, but looking back on I think especially the you know, I think just the people I've met since, you know, finishing grad school and college so long ago, I just feel like I don't know, maybe for like getting a top curator job at a major museum in a specific field, I think my understanding is that you still do need the PhD and maybe in some cases you might need a master's program for to be taken seriously. But I think that hopefully that culture is changing because I think there's more 
awareness now of how that expectation um, does promote a lot of inequity, you know, and that there are a lot of people that might get passed over for jobs that don't have that background but are equally qualified or would really bring something else to the table that, that is needed in, in our institutions. Um, so, you know, as someone, as an arts industry now, I really hope to address that, that issue. And I think, especially for like grad school programs in the arts, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't think it's necessarily necessary to go to an Ivy League school as, as an undergrad. And, um, you know, I can't totally speak to the MFA question because I, you know, I don't have an MFA myself. I didn't really think about it too much. Um, but certainly with arts administration, I think that a lot of that experience you can get on the job. Um, you're not necessarily going to get a job outside of arts administration that will um, pay back your loans. I do have I do have loans from that program that I'm still paying off. Um, so I think that, you know, if I were to do it differently, maybe I would have skipped grad school or maybe I would have done a program that was more focused on curating or museum studies. But I did make a very deliberate decision not to go back to school for that sort of thing because I, I definitely felt like there would be no financial, just financially that just wouldn't make sense because I think the type of curatorial work that I'm trying to do right now um, doesn't necessarily require a highly specialized degree and a lot of it can be learned by doing, you know, doing these programs like NLE Lab, which actually was, was free. I don't know if, I sh if I'm allowed to say this, but the very first year um, it, was, it was actually free. And I think after that they formalized it. So it was a lot more <laughs> about education, less about hands-on, less of like a hands-on internship. So they, you know, now they do charge. But at the time I did it, I didn't pay anything for the program. I just put in like a lot of work and did an exhibition. Um, and then I also participated, I think I got a scholarship partially for this program, the um, Independent Curators International um, Curatorial Intensive Program. In 2015, I went down to New Orleans and did workshops with them, which also really helped me like kind of work on a specific proposal for a show. So there's a lot of like programs like that that cost, at least cost a lot less than a full-on graduate degree um, where you can kind of sharpen your skills and, and just like, you know, developing mentors yeah. and probably meet people. I mean, I yeah. just, the programs you've mentioned, I feel like you really be meeting kind of a targeted group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People. And I think, I think one of the, one of the benefits I will say about being in a grad program is always, of course, like the networking and just yeah. the opportunity to really focus on your research interests. And that really did help me with, um, you know, I don't know if we'll get to talking about my research and writing projects, but I did start developing my interest in really researching and writing about um, public art on the evaluation side. Um, and that's kind of carried into all my different positions in public and, and arts administration is also trying to build in program evaluation and innovate in that area. And that interest really was cultivated largely in grad school. So, you know, I think if, if you can make it work financially and, and you want to be, have that sort of concentrated time to focus on research and, and networking, you know, maybe, maybe it is worth it. Um, but I, you know, I don't know necessarily for a job in the arts where they don't always require that degree. Like, I don't know, you know, so. Right, right. Where, where do you see yourself <laughs> like five years, <laughs> Catherine? Have you thought, have you thought that far ahead? I, I did for this interview. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Like, I really should figure this out. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, no, I think, I think definitely, um, 
I've, I'm very clear that with, with the current work at the Oldstone House, I feel like I want to do it at least a few more years because there's more growth that can be done there in terms of, you know, we just applied for a big institutional grant, which we're still waiting to hear from, and hopefully that will allow us to expand the number of shows that we do next year and, and as I mentioned before, like build in more of an actual salary for curators and artists. Um, you know, we have some really exciting shows for 2020. I think when this episode comes out, in, if it's in January, we'll have a show coming up with Chloe Bass, a solo show, and oh, we're having funny. What a small world. some cool. shows that tie into the 2020 election um, with uh, Macon Reed and Amy Koshman doing oh. sort of community programming. Around more, favorites. more favorite names, yeah. yeah. Around getting out the vote. We're working with Environmental Performance Agency to do kind of an environmentally themed show, and Hopefully, if we get the funding, at least, there will also be a 10-year anniversary Brooklyn Utopia show in 2020, which is technically maybe 11 years, but close enough. Um, so <laughs> so we have a lot of exciting stuff planned for next year, um, and 2020, I mean. And uh, so, you know, I, I do see myself staying there for, you know, at least a while longer. And I kind of mentioned before, if I were to go to another sort of institution, more full-time or part-time job, it would probably have to be where I'm doing similar type of work to what I do at Olson House, that you know, multifaceted type of curating. But I could also really see myself um, as kind of the go-to arts consultant for these types of shows in non-traditional spaces, like sort of what I did going into St. Francis and sort of building a program um, from the ground up there and sort of establishing some, some precedents that they're now, I think, following for future exhibitions um, in that space. So sort of consulting on both the development side and then also um, trying to return more to the research I've done in the past on the program evaluation side. And um, I would love to make more space in my life for writing and blogging and publishing more articles, um, which I've done some of in the past about um, not just like the best practices in curating and supporting artists, but really what the impact is on, on communities. Because I still think public art evaluation especially is a field that's you know, underdeveloped and especially with like social media and all the digital tools we have today, there's a lot more that can be experimented with in that area. I'm really looking forward to seeing that develop. I can see it be something that is so crucial for right now. Uh, I feel like we're in a time of this kind of cultural warfare that's happening and where we need this kind of language that evaluates and gives us the numbers and the presence of why arts and culture are need to be supported yeah. are part of how they knit together communities and cities and that's something that I mean public art is is there but you know it's always it's the first thing to get knocked out and it's because it is so powerful we just need to actually like drill down on that like this is the impact yeah yeah and with applying for grants at the old stone house what i want to focus on is really doing we've done some visitor surveys but we want to do a focus group with some you know some of the board members and our institutional partners and really see like how the exhibitions are affecting people um, not just like an anecdotal um, sort of way uh, but you know just getting more formal data I guess around that um, and uh, what was I gonna say oh I guess I guess just to add to like the whole live event painting thread um, I, I expect that I'll continue that you know for the foreseeable future as well but maybe 
because I, you know, I really do enjoy it. And I actually do kind of feel like it's, it falls under the umbrella of my interest in sharing art with the public and with an, maybe an audience that maybe hasn't ever bought or owned art before and is, is also really like yeah. outside yeah. the art world potentially. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining it starts a lot of conversation. Um, Cause certainly these live event paintings, uh, I, I imagine that they're more affordable than a lot of the work that you would go and buy in a gallery. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so I, so that's, probably going to continue but I may I may ultimately shift the balance a little bit more towards um, you know spending less time on that and more time hopefully on on the curating um, especially when I no longer have such young children at home so that's kind yeah. of mm -hmm. that's sort of what I'm thinking um, should we hit our last question yeah so <laughs> <laughs> if you hadn't gone into art what would you have become yeah so that's kind of a tough question because I mean in some ways it's not a tough question because I feel like my interest in art is so much about not just art for art's sake or the art world but you know how it intersects with so many other different fields um, so potentially I could see myself doing like similar work in kind of like program development or research for an organization that maybe focuses more on urban planning or um, community organizing or something you know, education something sort of related um, but I think, I think just what where my strengths are are more, definitely more on the creative side and and the research side. So um, maybe I would be like a, maybe I would be like a journalist or a blogger. Or um, <laughs> right now I'm I'm definitely really interested in in like political issues and and issues around advocacy for parents and caregivers. So you know maybe I would write about those issues more than art. Who knows? <laughs> but um, yeah. Thanks for coming today, by the way. This yeah, was great. Thank you. Yeah, it's really And fun. thanks for talking the real talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guest, Catherine Gressel. Thank you, Ava. <laughs> um, you can email at info at theremix.nyc and follow at theremix.nyc. And production is by Courtney Coleman. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Courtney. See you on Instagram. Thank you. Bye. Bye.